Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. So this episode marks the first episode of the beginning of the fifth year of the revival of the Legal Eagle Review show. The Legal Eagle Review originally aired from 1998 to 2008 with Irv as the host. After an eight-year hiatus, I joined Irv and we relaunched the show in August of 2016 with the North Carolina Central University School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project serving as the show's sponsors. Over the past four years, we've had amazing guests ranging from the North Carolina Chief Justice Sherry Beasley and North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper to our colleagues and students at NCCU School of Law. And we've spoken with many civil rights attorneys, scholars, and activists. And one of the reasons we've been so fortunate to have such amazing guests is because of the immense respect this community has for my co-host, Irving Joyner. Irv has been involved in the fight for social justice for decades. Irv has had firsthand meaningful involvement in many of the topics we discuss on the show, be it advocating for the rights of the Wilmington 10, to being one of the key lawyers involved in the ever necessary voting rights litigation in this state. I'm privileged to have Irv as a colleague. I have learned much from him and I'm completely inspired by him. And I have no doubt that others will benefit from learning about Irv's journey as well. So at my request and indeed my insistence, Irv has agreed to be the guest for this evening's show. So Irv, uh, I wanna thank you for agreeing to be in the hot seat today. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So I want to first start with your formative years only because I think it is significant in your view of the world. So you were born in Carolina, but you spent your early years in North Carolina and New York. Can you talk about how the experience of living in these two very different places shaped your view of the world? Well, uh, that, that, that was uh, formative uh, in, in, in my mind. Um, I was born in uh, Brooklyn. My mother was a part of the uh, great migration that occurred among uh, African-American young people uh, during the uh, 1930s and 1940s. And uh, immediately after she graduated from high school, she uh, went to uh, New York, as many people uh, did, Brooklyn in uh, more particular. And uh, when I was born, uh, I, I lived in Brooklyn for a while, and then when I started school, my mother decided to uh, send me back to North Carolina with my grandparents, where my grandparents uh, raised me. 
but I also uh, attended school uh, here in the uh, state, and that was during the uh, Jim Crow days, hardcore Jim Crow uh, days, where everything was uh, segregated uh, in uh, in the South, particularly in uh, in North Carolina, and there was no uh, room for error or the uh, immersion of African Americans into full participation in the social life of the uh, state. Uh, although I attended school here in North Carolina, I would always go back to uh, to New York for vacation breaks and during the uh, summer. And uh, it was easy for me to notice the vast difference between life in uh, New York and life in North Carolina. In uh, Brooklyn, I could go uh, anywhere and do anything that I wanted to do. We could shop in the uh, downtown uh, stores, uh, could interact with people without any regard for racial differences. In North Carolina, it was very clear to me that there was a, a code of exclusion uh, that applied to me and that I could not uh, act the same way in North Carolina that I was able to uh, conduct myself in, uh, in New York. And uh, so that always caused a lot of psychological problems for me having to adjust uh, to these uh, changing uh, environments. And and, and I have to credit my grandparents with uh, providing a, a zone of safety uh, for me where they uh, sought to keep me from uh, interjecting myself in places that uh, they thought was uh, would, would be uh, dangerous for me. I had a great uh, uh, educational experience in a school that uh, provided me with an outstanding education. At the same time, they taught me about uh, segregation and the uh, uh, things that you needed to do to uh, avoid the uh, trauma of uh, segregation and Jim Crow uh, life. So we were prepared, uh, not necessarily for life in North Carolina, but for life anywhere that we happened to go uh, and that we knew uh, about our heroes uh, who were, uh, whose shoulders we stood on and would stand on in the uh, years to come. So it always provided me with an incentive then to uh, uh, right the wrongs uh, which I had uh, experienced in, uh, in North Carolina and the kind of freedoms that I enjoyed in uh, New York and uh, up north as they would call it. You know, it's interesting hearing you share your experiences as as a young, uh, young person, and so many of the, the things that you've touched upon, we've kind of talked about in the show. So we talked about the Great Migration, you mentioning that your mother moved up north. Uh, we've had discussions about that. We've had discussions about Emmett Till, and when you have a young person who's come from an area where there is you know, more freedom, and then they go to the South and they're not, they don't understand um, the limitations uh, and, uh, and his horrendous uh, murder. You talked about um, attending segregated schools in North Carolina and how you received a great education, but at the same time, you were learning about segregation and I'm sure the inequities between, you know, the uh, facilities um, and the, the 
for a parent, even though you had really supportive teachers. Um, and so it's, uh, it's great hearing you share your experiences and reflecting back on discussions that we've had in the show. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you as a guest is we don't oftentimes have a, an opportunity when we, when we have guests to talk about your real lived experiences with, with these topics. So I, um, again, appreciate you um, letting me pick your brain. Um, so, so you talked about, so this, you know, these formative years and you're becoming acutely aware of the differences and the inequities that exist because you're able to see it from a more progressive, although not as progressive as it needed to be in New York, but certainly more progressive than it was in North Carolina and the South. And, and you decided at some point to become involved in civil rights work. Can you talk about your decision to become a civil rights activist? Well, you know, uh, grow, growing up in, in North Carolina, uh, you know, part of the uh, educational process, uh, both at home and in school, uh, involved knowledge of what was going on with African Americans all over the uh, all over the country. Uh, I had family members who were teachers uh, in the uh, schools here. And uh, one of the things that uh, we always uh, had access to was Jet Magazine and Ebony uh, Magazine and the uh, Baltimore Afro-American and the Norfolk uh, Journal and Guide. Uh, these were uh, African-American publications that we regularly received uh, at home. And I, I read them and I followed them and, 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 and in that way was able to see and understand what was going on around the uh, around the uh, country. Uh, and the Emmett Till death uh, really touched me as it did a lot of uh, African Americans during that time because Emmett Till was around my age at the time that uh, he was uh, murdered uh, down in uh, down in Mississippi and there was extensive coverage. Uh, of that in the uh, in in the media, so I watched it uh, and saw what was happening. I, I, I watched the uh, uh, burial uh, service for him in uh, Chicago when his mother uh, decided to have an open casket uh, to uh, show uh, his uh, bloated uh, body uh, to the uh, to the world, and then to uh, discuss with people around me the anguish that uh, they uh, felt and experienced as a result of uh, what had uh, happened there. So I was always itching to uh, to get involved. Uh, I played basketball in North Carolina, and uh, we won our call a state championship uh, in basketball, and I was a part of that uh, team. Uh, but the uh, exciting part of that was that uh, in February 1960, uh, the uh, Greensboro Four, A&T Four, set in in uh, the uh, Woolworth store in uh, Greensboro. And that was the year of our great success in basketball because we won the uh, state championship that year and the uh, state tournament was held at A&T. And one of the things that I, I, I always wanted to do was to meet some of the students 
who were involved in uh, in that uh, in that sit-in. So between uh, games that uh, we played there, I simply walked around the campus at A&T to talk with students and ask them about it. You know, what was your experience? What did you do? How? What was your involvement? What did you feel? And think about it because I was just so disappointed that I could not be one uh, of them. Uh, but in 1960 is when I left uh, North Carolina and returned to uh, to New York to uh, finish school. But that was a memory that I had. And uh, around New York, there were a lot of uh, supportive activities going on uh, to show uh, solidarity with what was going on uh, in the uh, in these college towns, uh, because by then the sit-in movement had hit its stride. And uh, so there was uh, supportive boycotts of Woolworths and other stores going on in uh, in Harlem and Brooklyn. And I would just go and pick it uh, around those stores to show my support. So that began my active involvement. Uh, in, uh, in in the civil rights effort because I knew that uh, I had to show up and I had to do what was necessary for me to do to right the wrongs that I felt that our people were being, uh, were, were experiencing and I was experiencing. Uh, and it caused me some trepidation when I started school in New York. Uh, because even though I was born in New York, had a New York experience, I came into the school system uh, in uh, in Brooklyn as uh, as country, <laughs> as a country boy, <laughs> and uh, I had the country accent and everything, and it 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 it, it really bothered me so much that uh, in my first year there, I would barely talk uh, in class because I didn't. That, that's to... incredibly hard to imagine, Er. This is my first time hearing that there was a time when. You were hesitant to talk because you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and people would turn around and oh, you country, oh, you country. You didn't want, you didn't, you didn't want uh, that uh, that label uh, on you. But then I said, wait a minute, I, this is who I am, mm -hmm. and I have to be who I am. And so I uh, struck out there, uh, not only to uh, to show uh, the world around me who I was, but also uh, to let them know that I was in this fight. Uh, for freedom and trying to get them to see and understand from a firsthand perspective exactly what was going on uh, in the uh, South and why they should be concerned and involved uh, with it. So it's, it's interesting to me, even as a high school student, you were uh, willing to do more than just talk about it, you know, read about it, be um, enraged about it, that you were at a very early age willing to put action behind your, your thoughts and concerns um, and kind of walking around A&T's campus. I can imagine what type of experience that was um, in the 1960s. And, and even though you were, you know, caught up, I'm sure, in the, uh, the state championship um, games that were going on at A&T that you still found time and, and you had that desire to talk with students about their experiences. Um, so you graduated high school um, and you continue to be involved in struggles for civil rights. Um, could you talk about what work you did in, in college and even post-college that allowed you to become further involved in 
uh, efforts to support civil rights issues? Well, I, I, I went I went to college and and I was uh, 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 always caught up with the decision of whether to go to uh, an HBCU or some other college or university. And uh, I had uh, initially intended to apply to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, But I decided against it because I would have been uh, among the first African-Americans on that campus. And I didn't want to do that. And ironically, I ended up going to the State University of New York at Oswego, uh, which is in upstate New York. And at that time, I didn't even realize that there was an upstate uh, mm-hmm. New York, because as I grew up, I thought all of New York was New York City, uh, because there were so many people there. But when I went to uh, Oswego in my first year, I was uh, one of 13 African-American students on that campus out of a uh, student body of roughly uh, 5,000 people. We were in an all-white community. Uh, There was one African-American family uh, living in the the town. So uh, I decided not to go to an HBCU, but ended up being a pioneer at uh, Oswego. Uh, where I was able again to play uh, to play basketball, and that was one of the reasons I uh, I went there. Uh, but uh, while there, uh, I encountered uh, both poles. I had uh, people who were very supportive of me being there, and other people who were opposed uh, to African Americans being there. So we had to fight that uh, battle of Jim Crow of the mind. Uh, in New York uh, at uh, Oswego on a college campus where I thought that that would be the last place that I would encounter the kinds of dem- uh, 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 discrimination uh, that uh, that we would uh, that we would face. So uh, that that got me moving, and then I had to uh, leave there after a year because I couldn't take it anymore. Okay, well, we're going to pause there and take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about uh, Professor Irving Joyner and getting his thoughts. And and, uh, he is sharing his experiences in his journey in the struggle for social justice and the fight for social justice. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Nastasha Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition a government for redress of grievances. The right to protest is a fundamental right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment and is an essential component of democracy. Though demands for social and political change have become more expansive in recent decades with the rise of social media, mass gatherings and demonstrations against those in power are no stranger to the world and the nation's political history. In fact, for centuries, Americans have taken to the streets to make our voices heard, to effect change, and to fill and display the power and solidarity of mass gatherings even before the adoption of the First Amendment in 1791. Your constitutional right to protest is most protected in traditional public forums such as streets, sidewalks, and parks. 
Police may not break up a gathering unless there is a clear and present danger of riot, disorder, interference with traffic, or other immediate threat to public safety. The recent unlawful and unwarranted death of an African-American man, George Floyd, have ignited many around the nation to invoke their First Amendment protections to speak out against police brutality and corrupt practices by law enforcement. Unfortunately, acts such as the one this nation has recently been confronted with are not new occurrences and may occur again. This tragedy only confirms why protests are so vital to our problematic system. Protests bring people together, help bypass news blackouts and an unsympathetic media, provides an essential voice for the people, and especially people of color, and as we have seen, compel those in power to invoke change. To learn more about your right to protest, more information is at aclu.org. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and I have the opportunity this hour to interview my wonderful co-host, Irving Joyner. And Irv, right before the break, you were talking about your experience at State University in New York at Oswego and how you were one of 13 African-American students out of a population of 5,000, over 5,000 students, and, and how that was, um, that put you in a, a in a situation where you were a pioneer, uh, so helping to kind of integrate that school, uh, and it was um, it it was difficult because you had although you had those that were supportive, you also had those who, as you say, had Jim Crow of the mind and were not supportive of you being there. Uh, and so, right before the break, you mentioned that that you had to leave um, because of that. And so, can you pick up from that point and and let us know where you went after that? Well, after a year, and, I, I, and to be honest, uh, one of the uh, key reasons that I left Oswego was because uh, it was cold. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it, 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 it snowed uh, there, uh, and uh, you would, uh, I mean, you had a winter experience, and I couldn't handle that. Uh, mm. So with that and the, uh, the racism that uh, was there, I transferred to Long Island University, which was in Brooklyn, which brought, brought me back uh, home. And uh, it was there that I began to uh, uh, work with uh, students to uh, uh, try to institute some black studies programs uh, on, uh, on campus. Uh, we had a uh, collective of students that were very uh, close um, and uh, we uh, tried to uh, bring that institution uh, into the uh, modern era. And uh, that kind of led me to work with the uh, Congress of Racial Equality uh, in, uh, in Brooklyn. And uh, eventually I ended up leaving school uh, to work full time with the uh, uh, Congress of Racial Equality, Brooklyn Corps which was very active in the movement in the South. And uh, so we had a movement going in the North where we were then dealing with inequalities in the educational system, police brutality, uh, and in fact, the same issues 
that uh, I had uh, encountered in uh, North Carolina, I began to realize was present in, uh, in New York. And we had to engage in the same battle. And the uh, Congress of Racial Equality was my uh, 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 stepping out point uh, while I was in school. So I ended up just leaving school like many people did uh, during that era because we knew that if we could not uh, break the shackles of uh, discrimination and Jim Crow, that uh, our uh, future uh, was in peril, that uh, we really couldn't develop ourselves. So there's no point in going to college to get a degree when there was this uh, glass ceiling uh, over you. So the effort was to uh, uh, break this uh, glass ceiling. And from there, ended up getting recruited by the uh, Commission for Racial Justice of the United Church of Christ uh, that had uh, seen uh, some of the work that I was doing uh, in Brooklyn and asked me to uh, sign on with them to do organizing around the country. And that was just kind of like throwing a, a rabbit in the broadberry patch. <laughs> Uh, I mean, at, at, as soon as the offer was made, I accepted it without thinking about it uh, mm. at all. And from there, I was able to travel around the country, uh, working in uh, local communities uh, to help organize and mobilize efforts to deal with some of the uh, problems of, uh, of race that people were encountering uh, there. And that then led me back to North Carolina, a place that I had in, intended not to return to except for funerals and uh, a <laughs> wedding uh, here uh, or there. But I came back to work on the case of uh, Marie Hill, who was a 16-year-old in Rocky Mount, who was on death row uh, mm -hmm. for the murder of a uh, white merchant who had uh, attempted to rape her in the uh, store. Uh, so that started my journey back uh, to, uh, to North Carolina and a, re, I guess, rededicated kind of abstract love affair uh, with the state. Because I said, you know, it's, it's time for me to pay back this state mm -hmm. for all that it had, been, had, had done to me and all of the African-Americans that it had run out of the state because of the uh, racism that uh, was there. And uh, so I decided that, uh, that this was gonna be my stopping ground. And I worked on that for a while, then I did some uh, student organizing on campuses around uh, the uh, country. And then the uh, 1971 uprising in uh, Wilmington uh, occurred. Uh, and uh, so that led me into my work with the Wilmington 10. And so you had said you, you left school, you went back at some point, and then you decided to go to law school. So a lot of this organizing and civil rights work that you did was pre-lawyer work. Uh, can you talk about, you know, you were in the struggle, you were in the fight, you were doing the hard work. What prompted you to decide to become a lawyer? One of the things that we encountered uh, during the uh, civil rights movement uh, was arrests <laughs> on a regular and consistent basis. Uh, demonstrations uh, led to arrests, just organizing led to arrests, and then you were targeted uh, by the police no matter where 
you went. And every time we turned around, there was a need to have uh, a lawyer uh, to represent us or somebody else in the uh, movement. And uh, there were a few African-American lawyers at that time. And uh, you had to go around to find white lawyers uh, to represent you. North Carolina had a good collection of people, but they were overworked. And uh, out of uh, that need, I made the decision that the best thing that I can do to uh, help the uh, movement is to become a lawyer, because then I'm in a position that I can go into court and I can argue the cases. I can help uh, work on uh, uh, legal petitions and uh, legislative uh, efforts and to confront uh, uh, landlords and to confront school officials wherever they are. And that would give me a different uh, position and perspective in confronting the issues that uh, that I was encountering. And luckily, with the uh, Commission for Racial Justice, when I made the decision to go to uh, law school, they allowed me to continue to work uh, as, a, uh, as an organizer while I was in law school. And Rutgers, uh, the uh, law school that I uh, ended up going to, uh, was uh, really excited that I would come and they uh, provided me with every opportunity to continue my work and allowed me to incorporate some of the things that I was doing out in the community and around the country into the uh, studies uh, in which I was engaged. So a lot of the clinical courses that uh, they had at Rutgers kind of fit into the work that, uh, that I was doing. So I was able to, to combine it. So there was never a time that I lost a step in the civil rights movement and the struggle that was going on. And I was able to continue my work through, uh, uh, through law school. I would not advise law students to do that today. Uh, but I had a very supportive environment, uh, both with an employer uh, that was dedicated to uh, civil rights uh, work and uh, to a law, uh, law school that had a, lot, had a history of producing lawyers who went around the country to do uh, civil rights uh, work at the time. The other advantage that I had was the executive director of the uh, Commission for Racial Justice had a son uh, who was actively involved in the organiz organizing of SNCC mobilizing uh, voter registration, uh, voter uh, uh, participation uh, work. And uh, so we were able to form a kind of uh, partnership uh, with them. And I learned a lot from, uh, from the Snickers uh, who were really my heroes uh, at, uh, at, at the time to carry on the work that, uh, that they were doing and kind of following up on the leads that uh, they had uh, they had created uh, around the country and uh, they were under siege. Uh, we were not under siege, but we were able to be supportive of the work that, uh, that they were uh, doing. So that took me through law school. And uh, since then, that's, that's, been my, uh, that's been my mission is to apply uh, my uh, uh, legal knowledge to uh, dealing with uh, issues affecting our people. 
I appreciate you you uh, framing it that way, that that's your mission as a lawyer, because one of the things I love about NCCU Law is that we have a mission, and, and our mission is to create lawyers that will do just that, right? Take the, the, the legal degree and to use it to improve our communities, our society, um, to you know, continue the fight for social justice. So, so I appreciate you, uh, you framing it that way. And, and so you've carried on. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your work um, as a lawyer? And so at, at some point you, um, you know, started your own practice. Can you talk about some of the, the social justice work that you did in your individual practice? Well, you know, you know, I, you know, I, I always am, am, am grateful to the Lord for placing me where he placed me at the time that I was uh, placed there. And I always found uh, people uh, who were there in place that provided me with the kind of guidance that I needed to, uh, to move forward. Uh, I graduated from, uh, from Rutgers uh, during the early part of the uh, Wilmington 10 uh, litigation and uh, was a part of an effort working with uh, James Ferguson, uh, uh, Frank Balance, uh, uh, Charles Beckton, uh, and other lawyers who were engaged in civil rights efforts here in the state. And I used them as, uh, as teachers and guides. Uh, and I worked very closely uh, with them on, uh, on, those, uh, on those cases. And in fact, my first opportunity to uh, appear in court was with uh, James Ferguson while I was a student uh, at, uh, at, at Rutgers. And I was able to sit at the bar and at the table as a, as a lawyer, which was just a great uh, experience for me and have access to the courtroom uh, as, uh, as a lawyer. So I always had these giants around me that I could uh, look up to and that could kind of guide my path. Uh, Julius Chambers, who was not involved on the criminal side, but was actively involved on the uh, more of the civil rights uh, side, was a, a real mentor, and I followed uh, his uh, career. Uh, so I was able then to open up a law practice in Raleigh uh, and uh, really travel all over eastern North Carolina representing people who were uh, in need of an attorney, but did not have someone in their community that they could trust because there were few African-American lawyers uh, at, the, uh, at the time. And uh, so I got introduced to really serious cases early on, murder cases, uh, cases of discrimination, uh, uh, landlord-tenant, uh, educational issues. Uh, so I... I, 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 I immerse myself in those uh, cases, many of them not producing a fee. Uh, so I was, uh, you know, always uh, scrounging uh, to keep the practice uh, open. Uh, but then I was able to partner with a couple of other lawyers uh, who were in solo practice and we formed a partnership. 
And uh, they were very supportive of me. And that allowed me to kind of spread my wings and to do a lot of things as a part of the partnership that I was not able to do uh, solo. Uh, so like I said, you know, the Lord just placed around me the kinds of people that, uh, that I needed to uh, be able to fulfill my mission and purpose uh, in, the, uh, in, in the law. Uh, and I gained a lot of experience uh, doing that. I was able to uh, make a, uh, uh, I think, a good reputation for myself as an attorney. And then I was invited to uh, join the faculty at North Carolina Central uh, University School of Law, uh, initially in dealing with appellate advocacy uh, courses and then trial practice uh, courses and then uh, came on to the uh, faculty uh, full time uh, as a criminal law uh, professor. Excellent. And, and I'm, I want to uh, get into a little bit your discussion about um, your move to um, or embracing of teaching. Uh, you didn't do that full-time initially, and we'll kind of talk about that. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking hour about the wonderful and motivational and inspirational journey of my co-host, Professor Irving Joyner. We'll, we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM, licensed to North Carolina Central University, has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www.wncu.org. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review. back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and I have had the pleasure this hour being wonderful co-host Irving Joyner about and Irv, right before the break you were talking about uh, beginning to teach at North Carolina Central and before we dive into that I want to talk with you just a little bit and get your thoughts about the um, Black legal community in North Carolina, and you were saying one of the reasons why you decided to become a lawyer is because there were not enough African-American lawyers, uh, particularly doing this type of work. And you have been involved in the North Carolina legal community uh, from the very beginning of your you know, practice. And you have also been a part of the North Carolina Association for black lawyers, you've served in a leadership capacity in that organization. Can you just share your thoughts about 
the um, evolution and the growth of the Black legal community in North Carolina? Well, in, uh, in the 1970s, the uh, African-American legal community was very small. Uh, and in fact, the uh, year that uh, I passed the bar, uh, there were less than 100 African-American lawyers in the state. And the year that I passed the bar, the number of African-American lawyers in the state doubled. Uh, wow. And that just that one year alone, all of the African-Americans who passed that bar uh, doubled the number of African-American lawyers in the state. So literally, uh, prior to that time, uh, when you had the uh, emerging uh, work of the uh, North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers, uh, they could hold their uh, initial meetings in a telephone booth. Uh, they, were, uh, they were so small. And uh, so I had the pleasure of attending a number of their meetings uh, before I became a lawyer. In fact, before I even became a law student. And I was very impressed with the caliber of people who were there and what it was that they were trying to do. And then as a law student, I attended a number of their meetings. So in uh, uh, at the beginning of my practice, I was actively involved with the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers. And within uh, two years of uh, my joining uh, the uh, association, I uh, was in a leadership position. Uh, and eventually became the, uh, the president of the organization. And in fact, the uh, first person to serve double terms uh, with, the, uh, with the Association of Black Lawyers. But that always kept me in a position that I could meet and greet people, uh, other African-American lawyers, people who wanted to become lawyers, and then a lot of the uh, whites in power because uh, at that point we were an emerging force in the state. We we're actively involved in civil rights activities. So we were called upon in uh, many uh, instances to meet with uh, people in power to talk about the agenda for the African-American uh, community. Uh, so that was a real uh, uh, force uh, for me, it, because it compelled me uh, to do things that I wasn't ordin ordinarily able uh, to do, and I was able to utilize the mantle of the uh, North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers as a way to push for better opportunities, uh, progress within uh, the uh, efforts to uh, deal with uh, civil rights and civil wrongs that we were experiencing in the, uh, in the community. So that was uh, an eye-opener. Uh, one, uh, and at that time, I knew every African-American lawyer in the state. Uh, and uh, so it's amazing today uh, to uh, walk around Durham and not know uh, who the lawyers are. Uh, so that's a sign of, of growth uh, within the, uh, the movement. But I think that we've built uh, strong foundations for the uh, young lawyers of today uh, to stand on uh, mm -hmm. because we took the uh, uh, bold steps when uh, we were coming up uh, to uh, confront 
uh, these uh, agencies that would deny the opportunities for us to uh, be engaged in the legal practice. Yeah, and, and I think that dovetails nicely into your work as a law professor. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you have a mission as a lawyer, and it, it seems to me that being a professor furthers that mission. And so you talk about the young lawyers, young African-American lawyers, and the role uh, that the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers has played, even if they're not completely aware of it, to, to building that foundation. Can you talk about uh, why you accepted the invitation to join NCCU School of Law to teach uh, appellate advocacy, appellate practice, trial practice, and then what led to your decision to become a full-time professor at the university? Charles Day was the executive secretary and former director of president of the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers. He became the dean at uh, North Carolina Central uh, Law School. And, uh, and while he was the dean, I was the uh, president of the association. And uh, he needed someone to do this course in appellate advocacy. And he knew that I had been involved in a lot of appellate uh, cases uh, at, uh, at that time and asked me if I would come over in the evening uh, to do uh, a class. So since it was not something that would interfere with my lawyering responsibilities, I decided to do it and uh, fell in love with it. You know, my, my first semester there uh, ran into some uh, just outstanding uh, students, uh, and they were very uh, encouraging. Uh, they are all out practicing law now, doing a, a great job uh, as, uh, as, as lawyers, and I still maintain contact with uh, many of those who were in that uh, class. But uh, then I was asked to return in the spring and do another class, and, uh, uh, and, and, and it kind of got into my blood. <laughs> and it uh, just so happened that uh, my good friend uh, and buddy, uh, Fred Williams, uh, who was teaching at the uh, law school and teaching criminal law, was appointed to the bench. Uh, he became a superior court judge. And uh, his tenure began in December, right at the end of the fall semester. And uh, uh, Charles needed uh, someone immediately to come in and take over his uh, classes. Uh, so he asked me if uh, I would be willing to do that. And I decided that I would do that, that that uh, kind of interrupted my day because this was now a day class. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, apparently I, I, I impressed him uh, with <laughs> what I was uh, able to do. And then the uh, next year, they offered me a, a full-time position, uh, which uh, was a decision that I had to struggle with uh, for a while because it meant disrupting the uh, law practice and the partnership uh, in which I was engaged at the time. But I met with my partners and I told them what it was that I was dealing with. And uh, ironically, all of them were graduates of uh, North Carolina Central uh, Law School. And so they encouraged me to go ahead and do it, that, uh, that they would absorb whatever they had to absorb uh, with my uh, leaving. I just had to maintain a relationship uh, with them. 
And uh, so they encouraged me and pushed me and supported uh, the decision. And uh, so I, as they ended up, that ended up in pig heaven uh, and uh, <laughs> just uh, enjoyed it from that point. And now it's just a, uh, a part of me that uh, seemingly I can't get rid of. All right. And so can you talk a little bit? I'm going to have you shift in a second to talk about your, your current civil rights work. Uh, but can you talk about uh, what you find so valuable about teaching in, in terms of interacting with the students? I, I know from uh, talking to students how valuable they find your guidance um, and they are richer because they've had a chance to either have you as a professor or as a mentor or as a uh, facilitator of trips to South Africa um, and just exposing them to a wider world. Can you talk about what, what you gain from interacting with, with these young people? And, and not, you know, I should say young budding lawyers. It, it's a joy. Uh, for me, because in so many of them, uh, I kind of see myself uh, at uh, at their uh, age, uh, and they come in with uh, without a lot of the uh, racial baggage that I had to deal with when I was uh, growing up. Uh, so one of the things that I have to try to remind them of is how did we get here? Where did we come from? What was this journey uh, all about? And how are you impacted by this? Because all of them are beneficiaries of the work that we did in the 60s and in the uh, 70s. Uh, the problem is that many of them don't know that. Uh, they don't realize that uh, that they are standing on the shoulders of others who built a foundation uh, for them to give them the opportunity now uh, to be in a position that they can become lawyers. And some have kind of lost their vision or their way with respect to uh, mission and purpose. You know, why is it that uh, that you are here, and what is the uh, what do you owe? To, uh, to our community and what is it that you have to pay back uh, for the uh, breaks that you have uh, obtained uh, in your, your life. So a lot of times you see the uh, light bulb comes on, come on in their, in their mind and, and, and you can see it and feel it uh, a lot of times. So I'm, I'm, I'm there as a kind of a conscious reminder mm -hmm. of uh, where we've come from uh, and also what we can overcome. Uh, what it is that we can do to make this world a better place and the kinds of uh, sacrifices that you have to make, which initially seems to be sacrifices, but are really investments in uh, the lives of uh, others. And you remember all of the investments that other people made in you, and now you want to share that and uh, make investments in these uh, new uh, upstarts who are uh, seeking to become a part of the law so that the work toward uh, racial justice and racial equality can, uh, can continue. And that's a joy uh, to be able to uh, participate uh, in, uh, in that effort. And, you know, one of the things that the students benefit from is seeing you uh, 
right. practice. So not only do you teach and inspire in the ways that you've just shared, but you're also still doing the work. And so you're not just talking about it, you're doing it. And that's been a consistent theme throughout your life. Can you talk about the current work that, that you are doing? A lot of my focus now is on uh, voting rights and uh, political uh, participation, uh, trying to uh, deal with efforts to undermine the uh, growth and development that we've had in, uh, in politics. Uh, the right to vote is the most important right that uh, we have. Without that, all of the other rights become meaningless. And a part of that is putting into office people who are understanding and appreciative of this uh, notion of equal justice and equal rights uh, so that they can be a force in creating the kinds of laws and protections that uh, we need. And that's a difficult uh, thing. And if you don't have uh, political power that you can hold people accountable, uh, that you can help to identify those persons who are best suited uh, for those uh, positions, then you, uh, you, 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 your work is meaningless and can easily be destroyed, as we found out in uh, 2010, uh, when this uh, current uh, legislative uh, uh, power uh, came into uh, into place and have uh, constantly been attacking the uh, rights and opportunities of African Americans and Latinos to uh, vote and participate in the uh, political uh, franchise. So I've been dedicated uh, to that over the uh, past uh, 10 years and see myself continuing uh, to do that work until the, uh, until the Lord gives me the sign that it's time to, uh, to give up uh, on that. But there, there's so much that we uh, have to do. And uh, there, there aren't that many of us out here in the vineyard doing uh, the work, but uh, you know, we have to carry it on and I'm trying to be an inspiration and a guide and uh, a doer. Uh, mm -hmm. a servant uh, for this uh, mission that uh, that we are engaged in. And, and you are doing it so exceedingly well. And uh, it's not as though the state of North Carolina is not keeping you busy. <laughs> There's always the need for, it seems in this state, uh, this voting rights litigation, hopefully we'll get to a point where um, we can move our attention to other areas. But until then, we appreciate you continuing to fight that good fight. Uh, so we have a few minutes left and I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the radio show. So you've been involved with the Legal Eagle Review um, beginning. Can you just share real quickly uh, how you became involved in the show and what your thoughts are about uh, where we are today with the show and, and what we hope to do in the future? Well, at, at the outset uh, of the WNCU uh, experience, uh, which was a kind of an offshoot from WVSP, which was a public radio station in Warrington, uh, North Carolina, uh, the, uh, the station management uh, joined, or I was allowed to join with that management to create a community board, uh, a community advisory board and uh, work with the uh, uh, leadership of the station to try to advance it to make permanent in existence here on the, uh, on the uh, campus. Uh, from there, Beverly Mahone, who was news director 
uh, early on in the uh, nine, early 90s, uh, asked me to co-host a show with her, a uh, community uh, engagement show, community information uh, program. Uh, and uh, we did that for uh, several years. And then she uh, left the station, ended up at WTVD Channel 11. Uh, but uh, after that, uh, I was uh, floating the idea of having a show to talk about legal rights. And then we first came up with this notion of the Legal Eagle Review, uh, which we were able to do then for a 10-year period until I just kind of uh, burned out. Uh, it was a, uh, I really enjoyed uh, the uh, conversations that uh, we had with the many people that we were able to bring in, uh, but uh, physically it became uh, taxing on me and uh, I needed to take uh, a break up until uh, the uh, time that uh, you came up with this crazy notion of getting <laughs> the show uh, again. And uh, I couldn't say no to you. Uh, so now we're back at it. And, you know, I'm grateful uh, for the uh, for the four years that we've had and now going into the fifth year of a uh, uh, an, an opportunity to really educate our community, to bring uh, leaders, people who are involved uh, in efforts to uh, better our community uh, before our uh, public to help them to, to see where we're going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I should say that I had the pleasure of being a guest a couple of times on the show before the, the hiatus, and I loved listening to the show. Uh, and so I missed it when it was when it was gone. So uh, again, I, I was, um, you know, being a little selfish when I asked you if we could revive it, uh, because the information that we are able to share and the wonderful guests and the knowledge that they're able to impart is so incredibly valuable to the community, also to you know me individually and well. Um, and this has just been an absolute pleasure for me. And I'm just delighted that we are entering into our, our fifth year. We've got uh, continued support from the law school, from the Virtual Justice Project. And uh, Irv, I just want to thank you for being such a wonderful, wonderful co-host and continuing to encourage and inspire me. Um, and also want to shout out the wonderful W uh, NCU folks, Al Shadre Dawson, who is our uh, engineer who makes sure that we, we sound good and, and does the necessary edits. Um, and also Kimberly Pierce Cartwright, who is our producer and uh, Lakeisha Sykes, who is the station manager. Um, and so this is a collective effort and we are just delighted to continue. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to continuing as long as you'll have. <laughs> All right. So we are out of time, but we'd like to thank you for spending your Sunday evening with us. I am sure that you enjoyed the show and that you've learned uh, more about our wonderful co-host or my wonderful co-host Irving Joyner. I've learned some things that I, I wasn't aware of and so this was a real treat for me. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss the show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed engaged and safe.